Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Good evening. You are listening to Bite Into It with Lillian Rowe. We love to chat all things tech and we've got some really, really cool stuff afoot this fine evening. Tonight we are speaking with Vanessa Paik about the latest findings on community management. What is going on in that deep, dark, dirty community management world? Also after that, we'll be speaking to Dr Jay Rosenbaum about nightshade and other poisons that might disrupt the growth or might actually help the growth of AI art. Who knows? So, Lily, how was your week in tech? I've had a fairly good week in tech. I actually uh, wrote a bit of code this week, which isn't something I get to do every week. And so I'm feeling all of those nice little satisfied dopamine bits and pieces from writing stuff that makes the computer go. What about you? Um, Nothing eventful has happened, which I think in the world of tech is a very, very good thing. It is nice when it's quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's done what it's supposed to do on the tin, really. I did see a video of somebody driving a Cybertruck while wearing a Vision oh, Pro, I saw that too. Yeah, so, like, you know, nothing happened, and that's probably a good thing for this instance, but uh, I really hope that nothing does happen on that front. Oh. Please, I don't think that Vision Pro is available in Australia, but um, if you've managed to get one somehow, please don't drive while wearing it no no and I did see a really amusing video um you know these new products they're you know VR kind of stuff for those listening at home there was also a video of a guy getting out of his cyber truck wearing one and walking across the street purposefully doing the hand motions until someone pointed out that uh, you can't it doesn't work while you're walking oh so, so he, he, he was just cool. making it up Wonderful. Completely making it up for clout. So we love that. Uh, speaking of making things up, we debated as to whether we were even going to include this into tonight's news roll, but we've just got to point out that politician Craig Kelly tweeted porn and then pretended he was hacked. Why do they think we're stupid? This isn't the first time that nah. that a member of parliament has done that, is it? No. Nah. It's either, you know, not necessarily tweeted directly to something pornographic or liked something pornographic mm. on Twitter um, or whatever it was, but and then said, oh, no, sorry, I was, I was hacked. You know, they're not using it for... That, you know, they're not using that access to that platform a powerful person what a has access to to, uh, to put any other messages out. They're just, just pornography. I know. What an absolute waste of effort. I say if you actually get your paws on a member of Parliament's Twitter account, go ham, you know, absolutely get onto it. But what was really funny is um, I think it was still two, two or three hours after he first tweeted it, everyone had screenshot it or making fun of him on Twitter about it. He was – it was still up because he didn't know how to un – retweet it oh no so like just get these boomers out of places where they're in control of making decisions over people when they can't even hit the button you know i should say also for the avoidance of doubt if you do get access to one of those people's accounts please do not go ham (laughs) um (laughs) oh right yeah the responsible community no yeah yeah yep just just uh, just community announcement there but um you know (laughs) Do, do your best. Fair enough. Now, Lily, um, what's going on with Apple? Are they throwing their toys out of the cot? 
They have a little bit. Um, as you know, um, or as many of our listeners will know, uh, things in Europe legislatively have been pushing for user-focused rights for a really long time. This is kind of the general thrust of the upwards trend of the laws over there. And one of the, you know, they've, they've been going about right to repair. Recently, there was something about making sure that all iPhones are no longer using lightning cables. They're using USB-C connectors and trying to standardize on things and focus on consumer rights, which is great to see. Um, one of the things that they did do, though, was the uh, they've got this thing called the Digital Markets, uh, the EU mm. Digital Markets app. Yeah. And uh, this is legislation that's gone through, which is trying to make it fairer to uh, to all of the people publishing applications in Europe to have their own ability to release apps independently of Apple's App Store. You've been able to do this on Android since a very long time. Mm. Apple famously do not allow this, and have pushed pretty hard against that, the legislation has passed anyway. So that means that Apple are now forced to implement the ability for people to load apps into iPhones and iPads and their whole suite of things without having to uh, go through their official store or their official vetting process. And they're unhappy about that. So they have complied with it in the most, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, letter but not the spirit kind of way. Um, where they've they've more or less made it as expensive as possible for anybody to do this and imposed all kinds of fees and very high uh, barriers to entry on anybody who wants to publish an app outside of their particular sphere. Mm. Um, this this has not gone unnoticed. Pretty much everybody looking at their response has said, hey, look, this is incredibly unworkable and we realise that you're not actually playing ball here the way that you should. That continues to... Um, to play out as it will be interesting to keep an eye on how that goes oh definitely will be yeah definitely will be and it's it's that age old thing um there's always a case to say you know tech needs to you know big tech in particular needs to think about the community and you know the users come first all that kind of stuff but nine times out of ten it's legislation that sort of forces things through and that's kind of yeah. A bit of what's happened here, that's all good. Mm. Um, some new crypto warnings have come out in the Northern Territory. So essentially um, the Northern Territory police have come out to warn local residents. Cryptocurrency investment scams. One resident recently lost $5 million to a scam. So yeah. the money got sent out in 2022, but the investigation's essentially concluding now, hence why it's hitting the news. And basically, obviously, it's immensely stressful for the family and the people involved. This kind of stuff, the police aren't going to be able to recover the funds once they've been transferred to the fake investment companies. Um, and obviously, it's it's really terrible stuff. And a lot of people are embarrassed, so there's pretty major underreporting of, of these kinds of things. But essentially, um, two main takeouts is it was a cryptocurrency scam that came out that was hosting ads on Facebook, so it's a meta problem. Right. Andrew Forrest um, and ASIC have both started lawsuits against meta to tell them that they have to take more responsibility for these kinds of scams openly advertising on the platform. You know, whether anything actually comes out of it is a whole other um, thing, but it was also a crypto scam ad that you'd used AI deepfakes. So oh, Gina wow. Reinhart, Elon Musk saying, come and invest with me. It's my cryptocurrency. I'm worth $50 billion or however many billion dollars. Um, give me all your money. And people do trust it. Um, there's definitely demographics that do see these ads on Facebook and go, this is this is my ticket. This is my way to prosperity. And they are 
investing really heavily in it and it's a straight up scam. So just a note for those at home, please, please, please don't believe it when Elon Musk, you know, shows up in your Facebook feed and says he's going to make you a whole lot of money if you buy his his brand of crypto because it ain't a thing and someone, you know, has lost five million bucks, which is just devastating. So Yeah, it's horrible. And you mentioned something about the shame as well. I think that's a really mm. important factor that people are counting on on uh, the people who are targeted to feel that shame and not to speak up and not to speak out about it when it is something that that has impacted them so profoundly and I think that that's that's a really important thing to try and counter it can certainly feel a lot like you know I I shouldn't have fallen for this whatever Mm. but there are absolutely going to be some particular kinds of scams that are you know if they're targeted well enough and especially if they've got deep fakes involved and they're getting Mm -hmm. more sophisticated yep you know, anyone could fall for them. Yeah, It doesn't matter how sophisticated you think you are. So I I would also say to anyone who's listening as well, you know, if you've fallen for any kind of thing like that, speaking up about it is really the main thing. I realise that there's a lot of shame involved, but it does does improve if you're able to speak up, speak out, warn others, because it it preys on exactly that kind of thing. Mm. I would also say that um, when you said crypto scam i was getting really excited i thought you said cryptid scam oh Um, that would be cool like a a cryptid warning in the northern territory like if they you know is is there amazing there i we have to unleash the the croc army to save us yeah i would i would much have preferred a cryptid warning to be honest (laughs) i know it's a bit of a shame but anyway i guess we've got to be responsible adults about these things on occasion i suppose so um but one of the things that i saw cropping up in the news was that um quite as elusive as the cryptid nearly is that we have fuel efficiency standards for cars now we're not going to be a dumping ground for inefficient vehicles anymore for for anyone uh who is new to the topic it has taken a very long time for legislation to be passed that imposes fuel uh, efficiency standards on cars that are imported into australia as you said wrote we have become this kind of global dumping ground for all of these inefficient cars but this week that's changed that looks pretty yes. good. Yeah, really excited about it. Um, we're going to get better EV charges. Um, we're going to get, you know, there's a new vehicle efficiency standard. It's available um, online for anyone to see. Just get your Google machine out. Um, but basically, I'm really excited. It's um, it's a long time coming and it just, again, forces the hand of the big car companies to just do better and make better cars and you know, stop dumping old crappy stuff on, um, you know, unsuspecting countries of which we've kind of inadvertently been one. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see it come up. <laughs> Love it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. So we are super excited. Now we're going to talk to um, Vanessa Pake, who is um, having a chat to us all about the state of community management. What goes on in the world? What even is community management? We're about to find out. So welcome to the show, Vanessa. Hi, Ro. It's great to be here. Excellent. Well, we've got to kick things off. In this particular context, what on earth is community management? It's a pretty good place to start. So community management is one of those, in a sense, a very kind of 21st century job occupation, even though, to be honest, it's kind of been around as long as humans have been using computers to talk to one another, so really like 40 or 50 years. And community managers are those humans whose job it is, and they usually paid to do it, it's the profession, 
to create a, a safe, productive environment where whatever the core business of that community can actually happen. So for some things that might be like a big brand community, so it might be kind of product service or support or kind of content creation, things like that. But for, for many others, it's things like communities of practice. So, you know, we know they have lots of community managers who are looking after communities of different types of professionals. And it's their job to make sure that they're engaging meaningfully, connecting, getting what they need to out of it, but also that it's done in kind of a safe and like high-functioning way that is also giving, I guess you might say, whoever those core constituents are, what they need out of it. So if there's an organisation that's paying for it or hosting it, are they getting benefits out of that? So it's the people that think about what do we get out of gathering people together and what sort of systems do we need in place to make that happen? And, of course, if they're online community managers, that's happening in digital social environments like social media. And that can be a pretty intensive place to work. I think, you know, anybody who's spent any time on any kind of social media mm. knows that just, just being a human out there doing that kind of thing can be pretty tricky. So doing that as a profession probably comes with its own particular set of concerns and potentially hazards, right? Like what kind of things do folks typically experience in this way? Yeah, look, it really does. I think what's really interesting watching this role evolve, I've, I've sort of been in this space for a few decades. And so, yeah, look, 20 years ago, uh, most folk really wouldn't necessarily know what you were talking about if you talked about this stuff. But as you said, even now, it's like we, we all, just by being a human being on the internet, I think I've had probably some more than others, a bit of a taste of kind of some of the online harms out there and some of the less than pleasant experiences. So, look, I mean, in many many situations, it can be really rewarding work. You know, the sort of people that do this stuff tend to be drawn to bringing people together and creating that shared culture and shared value and that sort of stuff. But, but yeah, look, I mean, if you're out there on the internet, particularly if your community is sort of hanging out there on a digital thoroughfare, so, you know, if you're a group on Facebook or if you're sort of on a profile or on a channel somewhere where there's a lot of other folk around and you don't have the ability to kind of cordon yourself up from that very easily, then, you know, you're going to be subject to sort of the drive-by online harms that we all are. But, of course, there are, you know, some very serious things that happen in terms of hate speech and misinformation, um, uh, threats of self-harm, threats of harm to others, all the, you know, the, the nasties of the internet and even things like, you know, copyright. So, for example, I, I know a lot of folk in creative communities and working for communities for large music organisations who have been trying to contend with things like the recent flood of Taylor Swift AI-generated oh, yeah. uh, kind mm. of stuff. So, yeah, so look, it's really complicated. One day you might be sort of swatting a troll, the next day you might be sort of trying to unpack if something's misinformation and what you need to do to mitigate that risk for your community members, or if you need to do anything at all, what, what steps should you take, and then you might be kind of, you know, connecting somebody who's sounding like they're maybe not not in a great headspace with appropriate resources. So, look, I mean, I have a, a friend who works uh, in this space at the ABC and she describes this work as sort of being a digital first responder and I think that's what's really interesting about this research that, you know, we kind of do in this space is either, even if you're not exactly in a therapeutic context, right? You might be working in a very commercial org for a commercial kind of community. You still end up doing this really human-to-human, relationship-oriented work that is very care work. Like, it's, it's, it's emotional labour in many respects. So it's a really fascinating profession, really rewarding, but definitely has quite a lot of challenges as well. You've been doing this report, or the ACM has been doing this report since 2015, once a year. And mm. the 2023 report... When I um, so I opened it up, had a had a read through, and there's this uh, this opening statement uh, that that you've made as sort of the, the 
for the, the preface to the report, and it opens with the title An Existential Crossroads, which really got my attention. What is it about <laughs> the report findings this year that made you use that title? Yeah, look, it, I, I confess I, I do have a tendency to be melodramatic, so it might be partly that, but <laughs> look, I, I think look, it is, it's kind of what we were saying. So in many ways, it's the same things that are affecting everybody. So, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure that if we went out and tapped anybody in any job right now, quite a lot of them would probably say, I feel like I'm having, a, like I'm at an existential crossroads. Yeah. I think we, we're in an age of polycrisis. There's so much stuff going on. We're contending with, you know, rapid change in technology, rapid change in workplaces. Everything is sort of topsy-turvy at the best of times at the moment so and if if this sort of work where you're dealing with people and relationships in on digital front lines is going to sort of be a bit of an intersectional point for a lot of that so that's part of it I think but what's really come up this year and we we sort of started doing this report because we wanted to benchmark this as a profession in Australia there are tens of thousands of, of professionals doing this work and it was a little bit of an invisible industry to a degree so we wanted to kind of capture that and surface it and what we've found is you know, there's some really good positives. You know, we've got uh, very well-paid community managers in Australia compared to lots of other countries. It's quite a specialised, respected industry in many senses. They're very well-educated. There's lots of great opportunities. Businesses are really kind of uh, getting better at uh, understanding how to how to create communities around a purpose and make the most of that and therefore investing in community and, and practitioners to do this work. But then on the, on the flip side, on the challenging side... So many people this year told us in this research that they were really feeling that sense of overwhelm. So the stuff that's come up before, but it's sort of at really acute levels now. So exhaustion, mental health issues, uh, burnout, fatigue, particularly around things like just confronting all of those online harms we spoke about, having to be that that sort of bridge between the organisation and and, and other folk. And then also, interestingly, kind of this, this threat around AI. So, you know, obviously community managers, if they're working like, they're pretty tech-friendly. They're they're not scared of technology. Many of them are already using a lot of AI tools in their work. So it's not so much just using AI in principle, but they're worried about it being misapplied and making things worse. So kind of using AI tools to perhaps kind of get rid of entry-level roles, but maybe kind of cutting off opportunities for the industry, or perhaps using them for high-risk or high-sensitive situations and sort of in a really clumsy way. And we've certainly got sort of scads of evidence from Mm. from really impressive researchers about how that can all go really horribly wrong. So combined kind of fear of, you know, we don't think... We don't have confidence that this stuff's going to be applied smartly and we're not really excited about where this industry is going. So we saw a lot of people that have been in the space for a number of years, sort of mid- and senior-level professionals, saying they're, they're looking to, to leave uh, and kind of move into something else, which, which does represent a bit of a fork in the road, I think, for this profession in Australia. Important to call out, too, this is being reflected in similar surveys globally for this sort of work, too. So while we have our own unique sets of this, Generally speaking, this is kind of a global global thing that everyone's going through. Where it's like a bit of a, a redefining moment that you know has got a lot of opportunity, but also some real risks and um, kind of some some sticky stuff as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, I was interested in zooming in on um, one of your points around um, you know really experienced veterans, people that just know their platforms and what's happening through and through who are leaving the field due to lack of opportunities in Australia. Where is Australia sort of falling over in terms of career paths, perhaps compared to other, perhaps more sophisticated industries elsewhere overseas? 
It's a great question. Community management is also one of those things that for a while it was sort of seen as a little bit of a junior role, and certainly there are junior roles within it, but that, that's been largely mitigated. You know, there are, as, as I was saying, more highly paid roles out there, better opportunities, but what's happening is everyone's hitting kind of a mid-career ceiling. So where we're a little bit different in, in bigger markets, and it fundamentally does, it usually comes down to a question of scale. So across Europe, the US, North America, you're going to have more kind of Head, head of community roles, more chief community officers, these sorts of things, sometimes wrapped up with um, kind of sometimes adjacent type of roles and maybe kind of sometimes customer experience roles, if it's particularly if it's a commercial sort of brand, uh, in, engagement, things like that. So there's a little bit of that happening where they'll hit that point here and the the job's just out there. So they've, they've reached, you know, maybe they have a team, they've hired a team, um, they're sort of mid-level, but there's just really nowhere else for them to go. And even if perhaps that one in a million head, head of community or you know, chief community officer, which is very rare here, does come up, you know, you've got a, a pointy end of, of the market kind of going for it. And it's just not enough happening. Mm. So I think they're, they're hitting that and then they're finding that they're, you know, they, they're, they're getting bored, right? So they're, they're on automatic pilot. They're not being challenged in the work. So, you know, some are going into consultancy and working in a more freelance way or doing it as part of kind of a, yeah, a fractional role, which is, you know, on the rise in popularity where they're doing that and a bit of, bit of other stuff as well. But a lot of sort of saying, you know what, I'm actually just going to, off the back of the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world, I just actually just want a complete break. Maybe I want to get offline for a while. Maybe I want to do something entirely different. So, yeah, and bring the skills I have around building culture or stewardship and gathering people. And, you know, these are valuable skills in other aspects of life. So maybe I can use them, you know, in other ways. I, I, a very senior community manager I know, actually, uh, this is in the United States, uh, quit the industry last year and has gone and actually gone uh, to start his own cannabis plantation. Total <laughs> <laughs> life change. Another one I know has gone to become a totally different kind of farmer. So it's, I think there's life change stuff happening, some of which might happen around you know, the middle of your life anyway. But there is this sort of, there's just this sense now that we've given it a red hot go for quite a while and that the opportunities just aren't emerging. Of course, some are, some are going overseas as well, but I think, you know, it's a shame if we can't retain that talent here. I think that'd be a bit of a loss. Mm. I noted also in the report that the cohorts that you're surveying um, and presumably as a, as a subset of the, the industry as a whole are trending older as well. Does that mean that there aren't that many people coming in, people aren't attracted to this as a profession? Yeah, I think what's happening, so you're right, we, we saw a bit of a spike of younger folk coming through for a while, which is terrific, and they're still there, they're not invisible, but I, I think according to... Uh, the, the sort of job data research that we've also looked at and just looking at verbatims and, and what folks are self-reporting to us, they're saying that, you know, it comes back to that AI point we made. So they're saying, oh, look, you know, whereas I would have had a foot in the door because um, I really want to do this, I'm really interested yeah. in it, uh, but I need a little bit of experience before I, you know, go and put my hand up for that mid-career role. I I can't get it because people will think they can automate that now when and maybe they can aspect, uh, sorry, maybe they can uh, sort of automate aspects of it, but not in its entirety. You still need someone who sort of understands this practice as a holistic practice to be able to advise on that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, so they're not getting the footholds that they once did, and that it remains to be seen exactly how much that will impact sort of that pipeline of talent. But, again, that's sort of what we point to in the report is maybe a bit of a sort of a um, kind of 
burn, burning at both ends where we might lose folks coming in the front door, losing some of that veteran talent and then maybe like an, you know, an overworked glob of humans in the middle, which we, we don't want to <laughs> see. So, yeah, we, and it's, but it just seems in really interesting contrast to the other data which says businesses are sort of finally starting to understand communities in Australia and, you know, we, we were an early mover in this space. Anyone out there in your listener base who remember the early internet in Australia, we were first movers in a lot of this stuff compared to some of our international friends. But we kind of got a little bit, bit spooked by the dot-com boom, a bit spooked by a few other things and sort of retreated to the other things and have kind of come back out very slowly. So it's starting to turn, that's starting to turn around, but where, will the talent be there because we've been sort of banging that drum for a while? So, it's, look, it's, it's a really interesting job. It's still, if you think about the long term, in its infancy, who knows where it's going to go? We might become, you know, more more specialist on the AI side. Yeah, for sure. Um, as someone who has spent a really large swath of my career as a as a community manager myself on some uh, pretty fiery uh, pages and brands, um, oh, yeah. I I can definitely <laughs> urge anyone listening if you work in marketing, communications, crisis management, anything, get your paws on this report. You can head on over to AustralianCommunityManagers.com.au uh, to find out more about the results and outcome because it's really really telling about where things are at with the industry and I think you know one thing that surprised absolutely no one but was a major finding in this particular one is just misinformation being uh, such a huge part of everyone's area of concern but Vanessa Paik I wanted to thank you so much for coming to join us on the show and run us through this really appreciate it absolute pleasure thank you guys so much for having me this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organization in Melbourne Australia Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So we've been chatting about community management and all of the things that AI is already doing to the social media experience. And AI is touching a whole lot of different corners as well. And we're getting to the literal poison area. Um, So we're going to have a chat and find out what's going on. We're going to talk to Dr. Jay Rosenbaum, who is a contemporary artist specialising in 3D modelling, augmented reality and machine learning. So welcome to the show, Jay. Hi, thanks for having me. Yay. So we were, both Lily and I are a bit excited about this particular topic so it's essentially all around the topic of artists who share their work online which is of course just about everyone under the sun um the rapid rise in that ai art and arts inclusion in those large learning models or llms which you talk about quite a bit on the show has obviously had some really huge implications and concerns least of all being copyright breaches and of course beyond but there's always that constant thing of, but you still want to be um, pushing technology and seeing where technology can go and not being afraid of technology because it can all benefit us enormously. So we wanted to have a little bit of a look tonight at Nightshade. Um, it's a poison per se um, in real and AI words, worlds, which is seeing a huge demand so as it basically poisons generative AI models and it was downloaded more than 250,000 times over its first five days of release which was absolutely huge. Free tool designed by researchers at the University of Chicago Um, and so Jay we wanted to get a little bit of a rundown. Um, Do you see a role for these kinds of poisons? I definitely see a huge role for them. They're a way that artists can fight back against their data being slurped up and a way to um, see about controlling the narrative for themselves in Mm. a way. 
Super important. Um, yeah, one of the things I guess we look, I, I was a bit curious um, because I don't work in the AI um, art space at all um, and I got sucked in by the name. <laughs> so I had a little bit of a look up at the, you know, academics who put it together and um, essentially how it works is it is able to confuse the pairings of words that's used by the AI art generators by creating a false match between the images and the text. So the creator of Nightshade, who's also a computer science professor at the University of Chicago, Ben Zhao explained it will, for example, take an image of a dog, alter it in subtle ways so it still looks like a dog to human the eye, except to the AI it now looks like a cat. Um, do you find? Do you think that because you've jumped in and started experimenting right away, um, how, how's it been working out for you and what have you done with your experiments? It's fascinating to work mm. with. It's um, it's quite slow, if I'm if I'm honest, um, on my on my Mac GPU. Um, but it, they've they've just updated it, so it's working a bit better now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very excited for the web based versions or and the command line versions when they come out. But the um, the system itself it allows you to so if you upload an image or if you add an image to it, you're allowed to pick the word that it oh. most represents. So it might be it might be cat or it might be a car or something you know just one one word or a short term that lets you specify what that is, and then when you train it, it actually um, uses it picks what it's going to be. So it actually um, puts little perturbations into the image. So it's it's actually working as an adversarial model so that on the low ends you can't really see what it does. On the higher ends you can. You can see sort of changes in, like, backgrounds and stuff like that. But it actually fools the AI, (laughs) tricks Mm. it. (laughs) Fantastic. So the output... When it, when it comes out, the intention is then that if you're an artist, you can grab your art, run it through something like, like Nightshade, mm. and then put your artwork out there so that humans can see it. But when that artwork is inevitably scraped to train some new model, it won't have that same effect, right? So if people mm. put in art in the style of your name, they'll get it back a bunch of pictures of cats. Is that kind of the idea? So with this, um, if you put up, if you mainly work on pictures of horses and you use the word horse, then um, it will be, it'll put up pictures of dogs or cows or something instead. But if you want to further protect your own work, so this poisons the greater neural network and the words used, the language embeddings used in the greater neural network. But if you want to protect your own work personally, you need to use something called glaze, which is... Um, created by the same researchers and it protects that specific image um, by doing more adversarial um, techniques to make it harder to copy that style specifically. Right, so Mm. that then when when something is trained on a data set that contains these poisoned images, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the right output. Yeah. I suppose that the the thing that, uh, that might be missing from the description of this is that it only applies to models that are trained after you've applied the glaze and they've scraped the image. But mm. models that came before, um, you know, there are going to be works in there, versions of the image, older ones that you might have put out that don't contain this kind of thing. And it may be that that older models still contain that and that probably to save, to save uh, bandwidth and a lot of other things, they're scraping things that are new, that haven't been seen before. Mm. So... 
to make sure that people understand how it applies. It's, it's not like a retroactive effect back yeah. in time, right? No, definitely doesn't um, protect against the um, previous training. But when you're creating new work and you're excited to show it, it's a great way to protect that, um, that work and stick it a little to the companies that are scraping them as well. What's the, uh, I suppose, what's the implications for something where you know if somebody says art in the style of blah and then it starts coming back with pictures of cats that people start associating that style with that artist Mm, I think that it's um I it hasn't probably been or I haven't personally analyzed it enough to really um know but I do know that certain artists that are associated with certain words there are um it has a knock-on effect there. So if you train on, um, I think the example in the paper is fantasy art. If you use that as your um, uh, name, uh, your term, it will also affect certain artists who are known for fantasy art and it will affect, like, dragons or, you know, um, mystical beings and stuff like that. Right, because it mm. works on kind of semantic association mm. between concepts, not just the, the word of the the name of the artist themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So what kinds of applications have you put it to for your own stuff? So I've um, trained on my, my old paintings because I way back before I got into this, I was a painter. And so I've been uh, glazing and nightshading some of my paintings. I don't have that many paintings yet um, done, which is a shame. But um, I've managed to train. I trained a Laura in my glazed images. And, yeah, it's not very good at real recognizing my style Mm -hmm. um which is uh very helpful that was with a very small sample set too yeah and the um the nightshade doesn't work so much on the smaller scale you really need it on the large scale so I'm still actively working on that yeah awesome um you right at the start of um when we were chatting you tossed in a little bit of a word and um we need to expand on it. What is slurping in no. this context? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very Seven Eleven orientated, but I know it's not. <laughs> you magic. No, it, um, <laughs> it's all the data that you put online is just it's slurped up, it's scraped um, by uh, the algorithms that are run by these companies to train their AIs. So they're they're training on a massive scale. We're talking 500 to 5 billion images mm. in these in these data sets. It's enormous. And so they just scrape with abandon. If it's on Google Images, it's there. And they just they use um, uh, crawler robots to yoink it all up. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely intense stuff. Um, because we're Twitter mutuals. Um, I saw that uh, you, were, you were tweeting about how you did a project a few years ago where you'd trained a style on its own outputs over and over again and it led to quite a bit of overfitting and corrupting and you weren't sort of super surprised. And I'm kind of curious, what else about the current state of AI art do you think will not be not a surprise? What do you think is on the horizon for oh, this? We're seeing a phenomenal amount of AI images being generated. Like if you um, look up famous paintings, a lot of the results will be AI generated. Mm. Um, and so we're constantly getting all of these images generated. I, I can't remember the number, but it's it's a phenomenal amount, even more than it was since we got um, phones in our pockets, um, cameras. Um, but, yeah, yeah. we um, – uh, so these AIs, because everything's scraped – off the internet and it's just it it's um indiscriminate it doesn't mind what it scrapes which leads to other problems <laughs> um it also scrapes up the um the ai generated images and so it learns to create ai generated images and it 
constantly is redoing and redoing and redoing on the same information, which starts to corrupt it on its own. Who was it that I think someone called that Habsburg AI? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think is probably a name that should stick. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, someone, I think it might have been a Melbourne based person mm. called it that. Um, if you're listening in, we love you for that. Thank you. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> so do you think there is any way to do any of this ethically in terms of AI generated art? Are you, as, as somebody who works in AI art as a medium, I know that the question of ethics gets thrown out and many people say, well, you can't possibly ever make ethical AI art because of the way it's trained and because of all the stuff that's gone into it. Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? Course, is it possible? Of course you can. Um, the key to making ethical AI art is to make your data sets yourself or source them legally. So um, just like how we have a massive libraries of legal um, stock photography that companies use every day, which have now been polluted with AI art, but mm-hmm. beside that, um, you can just buy the images, buy the rights to them, talk to the artists, do it with um, consent. That's the key is consent. Fancy even collaborate. <laughs> Shock. Shock <laughs> Fancy collaborating in the creative arts. Mm. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I think this is going to be a conversation um, a little bit like the Habsburg AI. It's probably going to go around and around for quite a while yet while a lot of things settle in and we all figure out what's afoot. But um, very much appreciate you coming to join us to talk about it. Um, And I very much wanted to have the chat with an artist who works in the space rather than someone who's just really cronky about it as a concept because we've really got to keep that big picture view on how can we make tech and AI work for us better rather than just nitpicking at the seams. So thank you. Not a problem. Anytime. Thanks so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And so we've been talking about some incredibly cool stuff this fine evening from Nightshady AI art poisons and um, good old community management. Anyone who's ever spent any time dwelling on the interwebs social media knows that it's a really, um, frankly, critical gig. So more power to all those uh, community managers out there. Now, we are up to our Weird News of the Week segment, which is always a bit of a favourite. Usually I like to put the boot into those Boston Robotics robots, but we don't have any... News on those this week, Lily? Oh, none of them. No. I no. thought that there was one for the NGV Triennial. They had one There is one. Around. Yeah, yeah, but we've already talked about that, so I can't talk about it again. Also, yeah, you're putting the boot into it makes me think about that video of the person trying to kick him over, and I'm just like, come on. You, when In the uprising. It feels mean. Yeah. And I've realised that I've been sucking in and I'm completely anthropomorphizing. So I know, I know. It's really dumb. Um, but that's just me. But... The whole world's talking about Taylor Swift for a million reasons. Obviously, she's, you know, in the middle of this absolute monster tour. She's just won a pile of Grammys. Um, all of the things are happening. Um, she's suing people. People are suing her. It's all on the go. But we talk about tech here. So we are going to talk about um, really explicit uh, Taylor Swift deep fakes that came out and were prol- proliferated primarily on X slash Twitter. Um, I've seen them. They're 
absolutely bloody horrendous, but um, the, because it's a Taylor Swift thing, she's high profile, she's got money, um, it is now likely to start legislation in the States to prevent that sort of stuff from proliferating. So she's suing Twitter or is she suing... It's, it's a Twitter thing, yeah, okay. so, it's, so it's a platform-generated thing, but it's actually not necessarily her doing it directly, but legislatively um, the American government's going to go after Twitter because right. of it. Um it's a shame that um, a very wealthy white woman took, you know, took, that's what was necessary to get it to be noticed because it's been a known problem for a long time, but at least it's happening. We'll take the win. Um, but it's come out of the woodwork in terms of weird news is that those photos um, originated from an online challenge that was designed to break the safety mechanisms that block people from generating lewd images with AI. Um, and that's uh, according to social science network analysis company Graphica. So that was one of those situations where the bait was dangled to see, let's see if we can do it, let's see if we can do it. They could and bam, out it went. So right. pretty gnarly stuff. It is. I mean, I, I have definitely seen contests like that happen at mm. things like hacker conferences where the intention is to try and push those boundaries to improve those mechanisms yeah. and make them more robust by saying, hey, it's quite easy to circumvent. Or here we have demonstrated how it can be circumvented, so let's help you out with that. But it looks like in this case, that's not what was happening. It was a competition to do that and then share them. A race and to share the, the bottom, results. essentially, yeah. and get them out and get them going viral, which you know, was always going to happen, which is completely dreadful. So anyway, onwards ho. And you've got a little bit of news. I do. So it turns out that pictures aren't real. Um, (laughs) This is according to the uh, CEO, I think, of Samsung, EVP of Samsung, who was talking recently about how uh, images that are AI-generated versus images that have just been taken as in a photograph, um, it's, it's... to their point of view, difficult to distinguish whether or not it is an AI-generated photograph in some sense or the other. They were referring to a picture of the moon Mm. that was quite a detailed one that had been taken with a Samsung photograph, uh, a Samsung camera, sorry. Um, And people were saying, well, is it really that real? Because you've got this AI-assisted zoom, you've got some AI features inside the camera software that are filling in all of these pixels and making it seem much more detailed than you would be able to get with a real camera if you were just taking that image the old-fashioned way with just, you know, lights and Mm. something to receive them. And so this guy's come out and said, well, you know, is it really real anyway? You know, where where does that line stop? Where does it draw? And and, uh, unintentionally, or perhaps intentionally, I don't know, hit on one of the oldest questions in art that persists and will persist forever and has been asked since since forever. (laughs) I wonder how that will impact, though, people who are having really profound effects when it comes to, say, deep fakes of them being generated without their consent. Mm. Um, I mean, those images aren't real either, but they have real impacts. Oh, absolutely. Definitely real impact. So yuck, absolute yuck. So we wanted to throw out a Hi, this is Vanessa Deholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. And we also wanted to thank our talks producer, Lou Lin. We've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday evening.